Welcome to Follow the Science, a podcast about science and its evil twin, misinformation. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist, and I'll be talking to all kinds of experts about how to tell the difference between good science, bad science, misinterpreted science, pseudoscience, and garbage that has very nice wrapping. When people think of following the science, we think of paying attention to the answers that come from science, but it's just as important to focus on the questions. In this week's episode, I'll be talking to two medical researchers who I think have really unusual original viewpoints about science and the science that's being done to understand and overcome the pandemic. Both of them have spent time thinking about how science can pose questions that are in our best interest, the public's best interest, rather than in the best interest of pharmaceutical companies or individual scientists' fame and fortune. My first guest says that even vaccine science, with all its recent triumphs, hasn't always been focused on the right questions. And what would the right questions be? Well, they would be the questions that brought us the knowledge that ended this pandemic as soon as possible. Peter Bach is a researcher at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. They have a drug pricing lab there, which he directs, so he's an expert on how drugs are tested, how they're promoted, how prices are set, and how the process hasn't always been ideal for getting the best drugs to the people who need them the most. He thinks we need a lot more science when it comes to testing both the drugs and the vaccines that are aimed at COVID-19. To take one example, there's a debate going on right now about whether we could save more lives with the first approved vaccine made by Pfizer if instead of giving people two shots, which is how it was tested, we gave twice as many people one shot. Given that there is a limited supply, it kind of sounds reasonable if one shot works almost as well as two. Fox says it's hard to tell if it's a good idea or not, but we could find out by conducting a proper scientific study. It's almost never the case that less research is the right answer. Um, and so, you know, particularly as we roll this out, and, you know, this is just a perfect example. Like there, there's an inadequate supply of the Pfizer vaccine. There's obviously been some tussling over whether or not that's Pfizer's fault or the federal government's fault. Um, or nobody's fault, just reality. And so here we are rolling out this vaccine. Um, one of the board members of Pfizer, Scott Gottlieb, has suggested that we should just use one shot of the Pfizer vaccine for now and then just hope supply catches up at some point for a second inoculation. And it's a perfect opportunity to say, okay, well, that's a scientific question. So as we roll out this vaccine, we should be asking the volunteers to be randomized to one shot or two and follow them. Uh-huh. And we are not doing that. Healthcare workers are among the first in line. And that's good, he says, because they make good subjects for scientific studies. I mean, here we have a completely managed supply chain. We're starting with healthcare workers who are engaged in a healthcare system where it is unquestionably easy to keep them in follow up, to figure out what's happening with them, who have access to diagnostic testing. You could very easily run a subsequent trial right now. And we're not doing it. Like a lot of medical researchers, he likes to use the term endpoints, which is really just a way of referring to the kinds of questions that you set out to answer in a scientific experiment, especially a clinical trial. For vaccines, it turns out that there are a lot of ways you can ask whether your product works. You can ask how well it stops people from getting a mild disease, how well it stops people from getting so sick that they end up in the ICU, or you can ask whether it stops people from getting those silent infections that they might transmit to other people. 
Those are all important questions, and not all the trials are designed so they can answer them, especially that question about the so-called asymptomatic or silent infections. He says by refocusing the questions, there's a lot more important information we could learn about the two vaccines that have already been approved, one by Pfizer and another by Moderna, and another one that's not far behind made by AstraZeneca. That company, he says, made some mistakes, giving the wrong doses to some of their volunteers in the trial. And this is the problem, or one of the many problems we've seen over and over again in this pandemic, is the U.S. particularly is just not in a let's do research posture when it comes to the pandemic, you know, or it comes to therapeutics or vaccines in general. So Pfizer and Moderna each designed their own trial. Uh, AZ designed its own trial and then bungled some of it, of course, you know, and they aren't using common endpoints. They aren't using common entry criteria. They're not using common follow-up strategies. They're not testing people for asymptomatic infection. All things that if you had sat around and designed the studies with the kind of public interest in mind, you would have done. There are a lot of vaccine candidates out there. Last time I checked, there were more than 40 that are already pretty far along in clinical trials, and they're all really different. Some are probably going to be a lot better than others at preventing transmission, and those might be the best choice to use for essential workers, and others might be better at preventing people from getting severe illness, and those might be the best choice to give to people in a nursing home. So how are we going to know which ones to use in which people when there are so many different vaccine candidates out there? One way that might help sort it all out would be to have direct comparisons where vaccines were tested against other vaccines instead of against a placebo. That is, you'd have brand X versus brand Y versus brand Z. And the FDA, of course, called in June for common protocols and endpoints and enrollment criteria, and the companies just ignored them. But, you know... The right answer for the companies is don't do further studies that, for example, could uncover toxicity signals that could hurt their franchise. Certainly don't do comparative studies against competitor vaccines because you may find your vaccine is no better and people will negotiate on price or you find their vaccine is worse and you lose your market. But those things are very much in the interest of the public. And so we absolutely should be doing comparative trials. Now, if J&J's vaccine comes online, it should be tested against Pfizer or Moderna or AZ or whoever else is on, whoever else comes online. You don't lose anything. Um, you know, if you, let's say you want to do 50,000 people of, you know, Pfizer versus J&J, it's not like you'd be squandering the Pfizer vaccines. You would have 25,000 some odd people getting the Pfizer vaccine just like they would normally. It's just that, you know, again, they should be volunteers, but they would get to volunteer for comparative trials. So at the end, we'd know if J&J was just as good or better than Pfizer, what the toxicity and tolerability profiles were like. The expectation is J&J will have a single shot vaccine. So a lot more convenient, a lot more logistically straightforward, only needs to be refrigerated. Um, you know, I don't know if any of that's going to work out, but that's why you have to do these studies. And just generally, we have to keep doing studies and the companies are not going to want to do it because it's not in their interest. Who should be organizing it then? Should FDA have set a, a kind of set of common guidelines and then set up 
some they did in june they asked for a common master protocol but you know the fda is pretty uh anemic with regard to its regulatory abilities or it you know it's sort of a question you know like you're in the middle of a pandemic you know is the industry going to you know punish you publicly if you actually ask them to do the right studies and so the FDA put out, you know, a guidance, a, a sort of a suggestion that was completely ignored. You think that the FDA should have more power in a pandemic? Should there have been a pandemic plan in place where FDA gets power to uh, dictate how companies do their trials and set up the kinds of comparisons that might not happen in ordinary times? Um, well, my preference would be that we continue to do smart studies across all therapeutic areas, but. Uh, I'm not sure it needs to be the FDA. You could have a view. Uh, you could have a view that the FDA is a regulatory agency for safety and effectiveness, but that the question of public health optimization would reside somewhere else. Um, it could be at the CDC, uh, where you know the issue of disease control necessarily dovetails with the issue of therapeutic choice and consequence and vaccine uptake, all things that would be influenced here. You could argue that it should sit at the NIAID, which is the probably the most scientifically sophisticated of the entities in terms of controlling infection and spread. Uh, I don't really care. Uh, you could argue it could just sit at PCORI, the you know, largely federally funded external research entity that's supposed to do comparative effectiveness research. Or you could argue that the Department of Defense has taken over distribution here. They should just take over everything. And that, you know, this should be viewed as a sort of U.S. campaign to tackle the pandemic that needs to be coordinated, everything from research to logistics. Another incredibly important question is how long immunity from these vaccines is going to last. They better last at least a few months if we expect this vaccination campaign to end the pandemic. Pfizer, the company that's manufacturing the first vaccine out of the gate, could track this, but Dr. Bach says they probably won't. Pfizer may mess that up too because they're they're pushing now for vaccinating the control group, oh. um, which you know is a tried and true industry kind of strategy for undermining long-term follow-up in their studies, so that you know you can't figure out is there long-term toxicity because you lose your comparison arm you can't figure out if there's long-term duration of immunity because you have to have something to compare it against that is interesting and yeah and it seems like that there could be ethical issues but at the same time people who, who aren't ethical that's again that's made up um but human subject volunteers for these studies volunteered for long-term follow-up and that doesn't mean i mean Patients can disenroll from studies any, or subjects can disenroll from studies any time they want. So I'm not saying, you know, they should be forced to stay in study, but, you know, these same volunteers uh, should just be continually informed. Like, we think the vaccine works. Your continued follow-ups, absolutely critical to understanding the duration of immunity these vaccines confer, which is absolutely vital to our figuring out what the long-term vaccine strategy is. Then there's that nagging question of the so-called asymptomatic cases and whether a vaccine could actually stop people from transmitting the virus to other people. He says it actually wouldn't be all that hard to test that. Uh, the other issues about asymptomatic infection, um, you know, that's something that should have been built into the protocols that it wasn't was really kind of, um, I think, uh, 
let's just say unfortunate is the mildest word I'd come up with it. Uh, because, you know, it doesn't retard either. It does. It shouldn't retard enrollment. There was unbelievable enthusiasm for this. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, if you add too much burden to subject participation, you'll get lower enrollment. But, you know, actually access to routine COVID testing or screening for people is, is highly desirable right now in the U.S. and in a lot of these other countries where these uh, studies were run. And so if you had said, we're going to take a, even a subsample of people and routinely test them during the course of the trial, I think most subjects would have anything had thought that was a great idea. And, you know, this is this is the challenge with relying on the for-profit industry to pursue its interests and having those overlap or spill over into the public's interests. Sometimes it doesn't align well. And this is an example where they just squandered five months of follow-up and 30,000 between the two studies, you know, 60, 70,000 subjects they could have been doing this on and they didn't. Now, as for, so that would be asymptomatic infection. It would cost incrementally more to do, um, determine whether or not those people are contagious. But in most places, you could take advantage of the fact that there's contact tracing. So it would cost more, but you would have to then take your subjects who tested positive and look at contact tracing and see what you could figure out from there. Um, but again, you know, an unbelievably important endpoint. So, you know, really a pity. Since it's going to take a little while to roll out the vaccination campaign, it's still really important to get the best possible drugs to people that end up in the hospital. He says the UK is setting a really good example because they have a coordinated drug testing program called Recovery, and he gives that credit for the discovery that an existing drug and a cheap one called dexamethasone is really cutting the death rate from COVID-19. He's a lot less impressed with the first approved drug, remdesivir. You just have to look across the pond at how the UK has a, approached this to get a vision of what a thoughtful approach would look like, right? Through recovery and stuff like that. They, you know, they have a network of hospitals. They've gone item by item testing therapeutics, right? That's how we know dexamethasone prevents death in severe COVID. You know, and meanwhile, we have a U.S.-based company, Gilead, that has done kind of one bad study after another one and, you know, relied on a study that was done pre-dexamethasone to support remdesivir, which finally, when it got looked at in solidarity, doesn't seem to provide any benefit at all. Yeah, we, I know we, we talked about that before, and it was a, another case where it seems like the science was cut short because it wasn't in the interest of the company, even though it was in our best interest. And so the UK is doing a better job then. And then, and you credit their system with the um, discovery that dexamethasone is helpful. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I'm not just me, everybody. We also want to know more about how this disease is transmitted. Since we have public health officials and politicians telling us that we can't, quote, let our guard down for a few months. But what does that really mean? What should we be guarding against? People are still acting like you can get the disease by passing someone on the street. But can you? Is there any science to back that up? What about packages and groceries? Should we still be on our guard about those? Last spring, we heard a lot of news about studies that use different kinds of simulations or lab setups to tell us how far viral particles might travel in theory or how long they might theoretically live on a surface. Those studies were good for scientists and science journals who needed attention. And stories about them were great for journalists needing clicks. 
But how much did they really serve the interests of people who need to know how this disease is being transmitted in the real world? My next guest is someone I've talked to off and on during the pandemic because she's been focused on just those sorts of practical questions. Muj Sevic is a doctor at the University of St. Andrews in the UK. She's an infectious disease specialist, so she's been treating patients with COVID-19 and also doing research on transmission. She's been collecting data on studies that track down how people are getting the disease in the real world. She's gotten some really useful information from studies that use contact tracing, where someone tests positive and a contact tracer looks at where they've been and who they've seen to get some idea of who they might have gotten the disease from and who might have given it to them. From those studies, she's found that it's not just how close you are to someone that influences the odds of a transmission, but whether you're in a stuffy room and, maybe more importantly, how long that contact lasts. That means people who work in stores or restaurants or gyms are at a higher risk than the customer. The other aspect we learned, uh, you know, from contact tracing studies, household studies, you know, having uh, frequent contact and also duration of contact is also important. Uh, there are multiple reports coming that, you know, high con- connectivity occupations are much uh, higher risk. Uh, so I guess like not only the setting Uh, but also what we're doing in that setting is important. Uh, For example, compared to visitors, maybe the staff have much more increased risk because they're in contact with multiple people and they have much more, you know, um, close contact with others. So the other aspect we learned is that, um, you know, uh, I guess like human factors, uh, that's the other thing we have been looking into Human factors, she said, include not just what kinds of jobs people have, but where they live and whether they can afford to stay home from work if they feel sick or were near somebody that they think had COVID. We're seeing much more um, regional heterogeneity in infection rates where it's very much linked to, um, you know, um, areas with poverty, uh, crowded housing. And especially we're seeing people are less able to social distance uh, if they have to work in multiple jobs, for example. And there are uh, a lot of studies suggesting that people facing the greatest socioeconomic deprivation experience elevated risk of, you know, SARS-CoV-2, but also elevated risk of mortality as well. Uh, So there are multiple things that we've learned over (laughs) the last couple of months. And I guess like this tells us a lot how we can, uh, you know, have targeted interventions, but also it tells us how we could align testing with our live realities uh, overall. I also wanted to ask her about those asymptomatic cases, the people who test positive but never get any symptoms. I keep coming back to that topic because so much of our policy has been predicated on the assumption that these people are really driving the pandemic. And also, it's just really interesting. I think the challenge is the asymptomatic uh, people. So I think there's been a lot of emphasis on that uh, previously. When I say asymptomatic, I'm basically referring to people who have no symptoms whatsoever throughout the infection. This is a bit different than pre-symptomatic people because they go on to develop symptoms. I mean, some, some might argue that it doesn't matter if people go on to develop symptoms, as we know, they can transmit. We, 
while we sh- they show no symptoms. While this is true from a public health perspe- perspective, this distinction is important because if the majority will go on to develop symptoms, we could use symptom onset as a starting point to recall contacts. Otherwise, for asymptomatic cases, we would not know, you know, when they had the infection, uh, when the infection started, who are their high-risk contacts. So, um, but what we learned over the last couple of months is that, uh, you know, the uh, estimated percentage of asymptomatic cases, you know, those completely free of symptoms, is around 20%. So approximately one in five individuals seem to remain completely asymptomatic. That means that majority of uh, you know, people with SARS-CoV-2 will go on to develop some sort of symptoms. And the other, I think, important aspect is that how infectious asymptomatic individuals are compared to symptomatic and pre-symptomatic individuals. And we know uh, from some outbreak investigations, and we've also uh, done a systematic review, it, it, it suggests that asymptomatic individuals are about one-third as infectious compared to those who have or go on to develop symptoms. So in a way, like um, relatively, they're not as infectious potentially compared to symptomatic cases. So this, I think, indicate the importance of identifying and isolating symptomatic cases as a, as a priority uh, as they contribute more to the onward transmission. But that doesn't mean that we, we should drop all the other precautions because, I mean, masking, distancing, uh, opening windows, you know, avoiding crowding, crowded places still uh, counts. So we need to basically have a much more comprehensive, preventative, um, you know, approach. Her research is also giving us insights into who's getting this disease and who's transmitting it. And I think the answer should inspire people to think a little less about shaming and blaming and more about helping. We need to acknowledge that there's a strong association between socioeconomic deprivation, ethnicity, and higher risk of infection. Um, and uh, we know that, I mean, there, there are a lot of reports now suggesting, you know, people in uh, public-facing jobs, low-income uh, jobs, uh, they're much, much at higher risk. Is there any understanding of which is more hazardous jobs like grocery store clerks where you, you contact a lot of people but for a very short time or jobs more like healthcare where you contact fewer people but you're spending more time with them? Yeah, so there's some data emerging and we have some data from the UK. Um, so especially, you know, people in occup- occupations involving numerous social contacts of longer duration and close proximity seems to be at high risk. So generally, uh, the, you know, occupations are bus and taxi drivers, social care, healthcare workers, uh, people working in some retail, catering, security and manufacturing settings. So um, I guess, you know, this also when it's combined with using public transport, you know, also having multi-generational families, maybe attending, you know, religious events also kind of, you know, in combination, it kind of increases. But I guess like we can't only just look at uh, occupation on its own. But for example, some people also work in multiple jobs 
And uh, as I said, maybe they work longer hours. And it's not surprising that we've seen a lot of transmission events that occurred in meat, fa- uh, you know, meat factories, for example, uh, because they work longer hours. Uh, they may also be, you know, sleeping in the same sleeping space or you know, carpool seems to be, at, uh, again, high risk for transmission as well. And, uh, for example, outbreak investigation in Germany suggested that, you know, people, uh, you know, sharing the same room for sleeping and also carpool seem to be, you know, uh, associated with increased risk of uh, infection. There's also data on what constitutes a crowded housing situation where the danger is really high. She points out that in some Asian countries, there are places people can go to recover from a mild case without infecting the rest of their families. That's proven to be really helpful in controlling the pandemic and saving lives. There's one study from France suggesting that if you're living in in an overcrowded housing that's basically less than 18 square meter per person for the the household, which means like if you have five people in the same household, if you have less than five rooms, in a way, like decent size, your risk of infection is almost 2.5 times higher. Um, so in a way, like we may need to you know, explore opportunities for isolation outside the home to protect uh, the rest of the household members and easy access to testing, definitely. Um, especially, I mean, I think like people working in social care, healthcare, uh, you know, especially people also in uh, shelters, prisons. We, we still need to address those uh, areas where people spend a lot of time together. I talked to Dr. Sevek for well over an hour, and our discussion ranged over quarantines, incubation times, and quite a lot on problems with COVID-19 testing. She thinks we're not testing the right people at the right times and getting them the results at a point where they could act on them. I'll be talking about testing in a future episode, but next up, we're going to tackle that very alarming and interesting phenomenon, mutations in the virus. The larger the population of individuals who are infected and are spreading this infection, the more likely it is for the virus to display mutations. It's a simple, it's a simple numbers game. Next week on Follow the Science. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam, with funding by the Society for Professional Journalists. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman, with music by Kyle Imperator. If you'd like to hear more Follow the Science, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast fix.